1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I am your host, Erica Monaghan, here on the Russian and Eurasian History Channel, and today it is my pleasure to talk with Andrei Ivanov about his book, A Spiritual Revolution, The Impact of Reformation and Enlightenment in Orthodox Russia. This book was published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2020, and it won two different prestigious book prizes. It won the 2021 Mark Reif book prize and the book prize awarded by the Early Slavic Studies Association. Um, So I am happy to congratulate Andre for that. Andre, our guest is an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin Plattsville. And um, I also want to acknowledge that uh, since the attack on uh, Kiev in February 2022, uh, over half a year ago now, his, um, he has many families in Ukraine that he has helped to um, leave Ukraine. And he also has family in Ukraine that he has been um, taking trips and working to support and help in a variety of ways. And I wanna um, kind of extend our best wishes to Andre and his family. And I also um, wanna just acknowledge and say thanks for amidst all of that, doing your job and um, doing history. So, um, and thank you for taking the time with, to be here with us today, Andre.
2: Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: uh, Super. Um, Well, traditionally on the New Books Network, we like to start out asking everyone the question of How did you get interested in history? Why did you become a historian? Um, And maybe, so just could you tell us a little bit about your path into history?
2: So on the larger kind of a mega galactic level, uh, I'm a historian because I was born a human being. So history is one of the things that distinguishes us from the animals. Uh, The animals don't have a historical memory. And we do so. I think it's very natural, very human to love history. People love history. Depending, you know, any kind of aspects of history, you know, is what interests people. Uh, whether it is medical history, or it is genealogy, or it is the record of your favorite team in the sports league, or it is uh, the war, or it is uh, the history of financial transactions, or you know, really any kind of any way you look at. A human economy, uh, or human life, or culture—there is history to it. Uh, so that's kind of like on a larger level. On a specific level, why did I go into history professionally? It's—it's uh, uh, it's been a, a process for me. Uh, in my uh, undergraduate, I was uh, I was political science major with pre-law concentration, and I really liked um, uh, I really I, I took some law classes, and I really liked forensic investigation and this kind of stuff. And uh, what kind of brought me into the study of professional history is really the interest in investigation, uh, the interest in uh, recreating the patterns of events, the reasons, the uh, motivations. And so I went through sort of kind of pre-law track to history track and did a second uh, uh, history major with great uh, professors that had inspired me and led me um uh into this journey so and uh, and this was in Fresno in California as well as in Davis California so i've had really wonderful um uh, undergraduate professors who sort of led me into this path as well um and so that's how i ended up being uh, becoming a historian that is going to um going to um a professional uh, degree uh, program at Yale. This is where I became a professional trade historian, where I got my master's degree and then my PhD at Yale.
1: Super, thanks. Yes, indeed, it seems that behind every great historian, there's some great teachers. Um, okay, and now to a spiritual revolution. Why did you write this book?
2: Well, there's a story to that as well. I, um, When I was in graduate school, I uh, took uh, several classes in Eastern Christianity. And of course, I'm from Ukraine, so this is a very familiar subject to me, but I wanted to learn more. I, I took also uh, patristic languages, uh, Koine Greek and Latin, and I took patristic courses. And I also took a course on early uh, Russian history, including Orthodoxy. And um, um, uh, I, having a divinity school background at Yale, reading a lot of Orthodox literature um, from 18th century and 17th century in, uh, in Yale gave me sort of this, this background. So I was reading uh, St. Uh, uh, Tichon of Zadonsk. Um, and when I was reading uh, his works, I realized that this looks a lot like Johann Arndt. And then I started digging more into this. And you know, since I was familiar with Johann Arndt from, from divinity school uh, courses on uh, Protestant theology, I realized that this is just very heavily influenced by uh, Johann Arndt, and I wanted to learn more, and I I started reading George uh, Florovsky and uh, the ways of Russian theology, and I realized that there's a story that needs to be uncovered there, the story of Protestant, of Enlightenment, of awakening, uh, um, Western awakening, uh, uh, theological influence in the Russian Orthodox Church, and not just theological, but larger influence, so Um, I started thinking about this project and I I wrote a dissertation, but the dissertation was more of a kind of like a prosopography of uh, Russian bishops, many of whom were influenced by by, uh, the Reformation and Enlightenment. And then, um, you know, about roughly uh, five or six years after my dissertation, I started rewriting and kind of doing... Uh, rethinking about this project. And uh, what really turned me to rethinking and rewriting were new sources. I went uh, to uh, Regatta, to archives in Moscow, uh, which in addition, Turgia gave me, in St. Petersburg gave me additional uh, resources. I went to Rome, to Vatican archives. I went to the archives in Collegio Greco in Rome. I went to the, the Eastern Oriental Institute, or, sorry, the Oriental Pontifical Institute in Rome. I found some amazing sources in Germany as well, in Halle. And these sources told really kind of guided me to write this book uh, and just sort of abandon what I did, some of the things I did in the dissertation, and just write a book. Uh, some of it related to dissertation, some of it just completely new. And so um, I wanted to tell the story that hasn't been told before, the story of this Reformation and Enlightenment influence in the Orthodox Church. And uh, the best way to do that was to... To uh, process the new sources that I found and and uh, to uh, put this book systematically as uh, uh, as a history of the long eighteenth century in the Orthodox Church.
1: Thank you. I'm, i I want to come back to this, these big ideas of Reformation and Enlightenment in Russia. But first, let me start kind of a little bit at the beginning and ask you to walk us through the structure of a book a bit, because. Um, because there's so much rich detail in here and fascinating stories that I think it is worth the audience hearing about. Um, And so I wanna start chapter one. Chapter one, you call Russian Orthodoxy on the Eve of the Reforms, the Ukrainian context. Why do you begin your story with Ukraine?
2: Well, Ukraine is really the the meeting point of East and West in uh, Eastern Europe at the beginning of 18th century, late 17th century. And uh, Ukraine is where uh, Russian Orthodox Church would, would get not only the most educated hierarchs in the 18th century or early part of 18th century, but also would get uh, Western ideas. Uh, Ukraine uh, is, is important for two reasons. One is that it had educational institutions like Kiev Mohila Academy that was uh, patterned along the Jesuit collegia of, uh, of uh, Eastern and Central Europe and had the same curriculum. So with that curriculum, you have Ukrainians who are trained in uh, sort of in, uh, in Western sciences of the day. So you have direct uh, connection to the West in Ukraine and including educational connection. But a second reason is Ukraine has a very sort of rich tradition of Protestant influence. If you read uh, Hrushevsky's uh, uh, book, um, the history of religious thought in Ukraine, the story of religion in Ukraine, there is a, uh, quite a bit of, uh, of uh, uh, analysis of, of 16th and 17th century in Ukraine and, and the influence of Protestantism in uh, uh, not just uh, sort of the, the Calvinist Protestantism that was very widespread in the Lithuanian part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but also Sicilianism and so on. Um, and then the uh, relationship between the Orthodox nobles and the Protestant nobles in the Commonwealth and, and so on. So Ukraine had a background in Protestant influence that went back to the 16th century already and had, a, and had that context. So I wanted to, to uh, start with uh, Ukrainian context because without it, we can't really understand what's going on in Russia in early 18th century.
1: Thank you. Now, staying with this first part of the book, and, and you do, I, I love the way you treat the curricula that churchmen and training are going through, and chapter two focuses on one of these churchmen, and, and you call it, um, um, chapter two focuses on Fyafan Prokopovich, whom you call the, the Russian Luther. Um, we'll get to that, um, but as reading this book, I was downright surprised of um, about, uh, about learning about Orthodox Orthodox churchmen studying in Rome. Um, it seems so unexpectedly cosmopolitan to me. And so could you tell us a little bit more about this? I mean, what are Orthodox churchmen or are they really Orthodox or all the time? Um, what are they doing in Rome? Um, and Great so, question. Yeah, what with... is this? yeah you, and you have this one set heading in the book, temporary apostasy or expedient dissimilation. What's that all mm-hmm. about?
2: So in the um, 17th century, uh, Ukrainians who wanted to study in Rome and who were Orthodox had to temporarily convert to Catholicism. The uh, Roman Curia knew of this phenomenon, and that is why um, many of the Ukrainians who studied in Rome didn't have to take juramento, didn't have to take the oath uh, of loyalty to the the papacy, to, to the office of papacy, to the Holy See. And so... Uh, they allowed these Orthodox to kind of um, have a half-hearted conversion. Some of them converted, of course, sincerely. Some of them did not. But this was a subject of dissimulation. This was the idea of dissimulation uh, or temporary apostasy that was very widespread in Ukraine. In order to gain... Uh, knowledge in order to, to go to, a, to university or school in Rome or Olomutz or Prague or, or any other Catholic uh, uh, college, collegia in Europe, uh, Ukrainians had to convert to, uh, uh, to uh, Catholicism, uh, Union Catholicism in particular, and that's what they did. So that practice of temporary apostasy was well, well tolerated and existed during this time in um, Eastern Europe. Theofan Prokopovich, whom I'm writing about, indeed goes to Rome, and just like Luther, and uh, just like Luther, he is uh, absolutely horrified by what he sees in Rome. He has this kind of conversion experience in Rome. He he, uh, turns against it, he turns against papacy, and then he goes to Germany and imbibes the Protestant ideas that kind of transform him. Uh, Prokopovich is called Russian Luther. Uh, this is uh, I use that term in my book because this is this is a term I borrowed from one of the contemporaries that described Prokopovich. Uh, Anton uh, Albrecht Firot, who was the um, head of uh, Pietists in Estonia, um, was a friend of Prokopovich, and when he wrote uh, about Prokopovich in his in his correspondence and his and his. Uh, uh, diaries and so on, he called, he compared him to Luther. And so this comparison to Luther uh, comes from contemporaries of Prokopovich. They look at Prokopovich and they say, well, he's just like Luther. He goes to Rome, he has this uh, conversion experience. He even has, you know, uh, Bayer, one of the contemporary biographers of Prokopovich, even describes a an experience with a lightning, you know, Luther had a lightning experience, Prokopovich Mm -hmm. has a lightning experience. So there's that comparison in the the sources. So that's where I draw that term, I draw it from how contemporaries described Prokopovich, a Luther in Russia.
1: Hmm, Okay, thank you. Now, um, so when, oh, and I just, I have to point out as well that I was um, on a bus tour in Rome where they we just drove by and they pointed out the pontifical Greek college. And they sort of said, this mm-hmm. was the Catholic Orthodox, uh, this was the Catholic Orthodox college. And that's kind of all they said with no elaboration. And it was only, you know, thanks to having read your book that I had a deeper understanding of some of what went on there right down to the, you know, documents that you're reproducing mm-hmm. your book. So it was a great read. Um, okay, so Fiefan Prokopovich, like Luther, is appalled by what he sees in Rome and go makes it makes his way back to Russia via Germany, where he, where he's picked up um, some Protestant sympathies. Now, what awaits Prokopovich when he returns to Russia? And maybe I would even tag on to this: um, Are there reasons beyond? I mean, and you gave excellent reasons. Okay. His his sympathies that contemporaries are calling him this, um, are there more reasons in in ways in which you see the comparison with Luther holding up or not for um, how Prokopovich's life unfolds in Russia?
2: Well, if there are any more sort of uh, parallels to Luther, well, um, uh, you you know, you could always come up with some. I mean, one is that uh, Luther has his Frederick the Pious. There's the secular authority that is uh, helping Luther um, essentially, introduced the Reformation in in Germany, and without a secular, without the Philip of Hesse, without the the Fredericks the Pious, without what's going on in Scandinavia, without sort of the princely or uh, royal element, there would be no Reformation. And in Russia, it's the same way. I mean, just the initiative of one bishop, Prokopovich, or two bishops or three bishops who had proclivities or who liked uh, ideas of Protestant theology, that alone would not propel the changes that had happened in the Russian Orthodox Church in the 18th century. There was also the element of uh, political power, and in particular, Peter and then Anna, Empress Anna, and then Empress Elizabeth, and later Empress Catherine, uh, Catherine the and Catherine II, who played quite a bit of a role in in making this happen, in in uh, pushing these reforms forward. So yes, there is that you know other um, element. You know we can we can compare Prokopovich to Luther, um, and you know his radical. The radical nature of his reforms, that were assessed as radical at the time, don't appear to us as as that radical now. But at the time, it was considered quite quite a bit a, uh, uh, a movement from away from what was viewed as sort of traditional orthodoxy at the time. Yes.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com/slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/slash system.
1: Hmm. Okay. Now um talking speaking of state support is kind of a good seg into my, segue into my next question, perhaps that. As the story progresses in time, in after Peter dies in the post-Petrine period, the story as I read it comes to involve an awful lot of politics. And so, of course, at some level, I'm asking an unfair question because as historians, we always we generally find that the best explanations are more complicated and nuanced explanations. It's not an either-or. But mm-hmm. with that, notwithstanding, I, I do want to ask. How do you see what's going on in in these factions that are emerging? To what extent is it theological? To what extent is it cultural? Is it straight up politics of people jockeying for position um, in the hierarchy?
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, I... um... I am emphasizing the theological aspect these are theological factions that are relying on political support to advance their agenda and the agenda is theological, just like there has been a turn in Soviet history from turn to ideology. Um, there has also been a turn to theology in our study of Russian Orthodox Church during this century. And I'm not, you know, there's there's been a number of scholars who have been uh, looking at this and saying, well, there is a a turn to theology. And theology is important. This is not just politics. Well, you know, doing what Empress Anna wants. No, this is theology doing what the bishops uh, define theologically, doctrinally, is uh, sound Uh, teaching and uh, not heresy versus others who say, no, what you believe is heresy and our doctrine and our teaching is sound and true. So I'm arguing it is theological. The parties, the factions are theological. There's also kind of a little bit of a cultural element with sort of more Northern European versus versus Eastern, South European kind of Catholic versus Protestant divide, uh, cultural divide but uh, theology is really the primary focus of my uh, study of these political factions and political fighting. <clears throat> even even to, in, the, in the case of foreign relations, like for example, uh, the diplomatic relations with Spain, which I argue are um, suspended for, uh, also for theological reasons. And there's a theological fight that go- goes on in 1730 that involves confrontation between Russia and Spain.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so so then here we are. We are seeing the Reformation in 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 Russia among church elites unfolding. The church elites that you know, in my introduction to Russia, were these stodgy, unchanging traditionalists. And the story you're telling over the course of the eighteenth century, the long eighteenth century, isn't that at all. So. Um, tell us a little bit more about what happens in this nearly century post-Peter to the, um, you know, early decades, the end of Alexander's reign, Alexander I's reign.
2: Mm -hmm. So one of the ways to understand uh, this long 18th century, and this is what I'm doing in my book, is to look at the influence of three very important movements that happen in the West, but we don't know much about their uh, manifestations uh, or incarnations in the East. And I'm saying there's a lot of what is going on in Eastern Orthodox Church. So one is the influence of Reformation, Protestantism, Pietism included. Uh, The second one is enlightenment. Enlightenment comes into Russian Orthodox Church and it, it really, uh, changes the hierarchy, changes the way Russian Orthodox Church understands education, uh, parish work, uh, the way Russian Orthodox Church understands emancipation and relationship with the peasantry. So the Enlightenment is really important. And then the third sort of uh, end of that, some people would argue it's sort of the part of the late Enlightenment or reac- reaction to Enlightenment is the awakening. This is where we get the um, the Bible society Uh, movement. And uh, this is where we get also uh, various sort of of, new pietistic influences in the early part, the early decades uh, of post-Napoleonic Russia. And so uh, these three Important events are known very well in the West. We know about Protestant Reformation, we know about Enlightenment, and we know about the Awakening, right? You know, people have heard about the, okay. the, the Great Awakening movements and, and, and Swedenborgians and the Church of Latter day Saints. They all emerged out of the Awakening. And was there awakening in Russia? Of course there was. And we need to tell that story and how that also happens in Enlightenment is there is there a story in orthodox church by enlightenment of course there is so uh, the way to understand my book is to look at these three movements in the west and ask a question did this happen did did any of this movement have an impact in russia Uh, and so i'm i'm looking you know we we think a lot of us think that or historians have been thinking about reformation enlightenment as a kind of a a dual or two-sided story right Uh, Two books, right? The Catholic Enlightenment, the Protestant Enlightenment, or the Catholic Reformation, the Protestant. I'm arguing this is a trilogy. This is a trilogy with with an Eastern Orthodox component that has been neglected. And now I'm trying to bring it to the fore uh, and uh, start a a greater conversation about this, that there's a trilogy of Protestant Catholic and then there's Orthodox uh, uh, Reform, uh, Enlightenment, and so on.
1: Okay, thank you. Well, here this um, this prompts me to ask a little bit. You talk about a trilogy. Did you think about um, including the third component of the story, the awakening, in the subtitle? Or because I mean, Reformation and Enlightenment, those are those are heavy hitters as far as historical episodes go. Um, what you've just said now talks about a trilogy. Why did the Awakening get le- left out of the subtitle? Um,
2: the subtitles are, um, you know, once they get too too long and too heavy, they, they, they create problems with uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, um, you know, with, with the way the book is presented in general. Uh, also to write, you know, I only have really a chapter, a chapter and a half on the Awakening it's kind of like the ending of the enlightenment because the awakening is seen as the end of the enlightenment and some have argued that awakening is part of the enlightenment there's a whole story about philadelphia awakening and philadelphia enlightenment that was sort of part of that Uh, or the neo-pietistic enlightenment in in wurttemberg with uh, with han and uh, with and later in, in germany with krudener and so on so some would say that this is part of the Enlightenment. So I didn't want to go into uh, uh, I- into a, a, a title that has um, uh, Reformation, Enlightenment, Awakening in it if Awakening is presented more as a continuation of Russia's Enlightenment. Also, the enemies of the Awakening in Russia, the enemies of Bible society viewed um, awakening in Russia as a continuation of enlightenment and as a continuation of Protestant Reformation. And this is how the discourse or the discussion of, uh, of Bible society debates was presented in you know under uh, Nicholas I in particular and late Alexander when they were when they were banning the Bible society and doing a reverse sort of a reform um, by 1836 with uh, with uh, reversing many of the changes that happened in 18th century. So I think it is good to talk about the impact of uh, reform, Protestant reform and enlightenment and leave out awakening because um, awakening is presented here as a part of a larger movement, but also we need a book on the awakening. (laughs) Uh, We really need a book on the awakening in Russia. And I know Stephen Bataldin has written a book that pretty much comes it comes out as a, as, a, as, a, as a magnum opus describing the Bible society. Bible society is one of the elements of that. So we need another sort of set of, uh, of, uh, of great books like this to give us a full spectrum of understanding of the awakening in Russia in uh, early part of the 19th century. And so I, I didn't want to sort of have a, uh, uh, a title that's hanging out there and that really deserves a separate book.
1: Okay, thanks. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um I wanna okay, I wanna ask you about kind where your book ends up. So you're so there is, or actually if I could, um so you've sort of said you see the reformation is is one episode, enlightenment is another episode, awakening is another episode. Some people see it as a subset of enlightenment or whatnot. Um, and there's you know various ways that people can conceptualize and understand these changes that come and i'm and, and so i just want to ask you to talk a little bit more about in your understanding to what extent is enlightenment in russia synonymous or near synonymous with a protestant ethos i mean in russia in the 18th century if it, um, it i'm kind of thinking about the chronology of mm-hmm. Um, that, it, that this story in Russia doesn't start in the 16th century, but rather we're seeing it in the 17th century. And so, yeah, I just like to ask you to talk a little bit more about how distinct or together you unified you see these episodes.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, I see uh, the influence of Protestant Reformation as a gateway to the enlightenment uh, in the Orthodox Church. And I'm talking about a religious enlightenment in particular, not the secular enlightenment. And in this way, um, the uh, Orthodox Church is very much in conversation and in, you know, has, has a lot of ties to Germany and Pietism and Halle and so on and uh, Göttingen um, and also to Oxford and Leiden also, uh, but very, very few ties uh, to uh, Catholic, uh theology including catholic enlightenment theology of the 18th century so uh, on the one hand uh, protestant ethos does sort of open up the russian orthodox church to enlightenment on mm-hmm. the other hand the enlightenment that the russian orthodox church is exposed mm-hmm. to is mostly german and german enlightenment in the 18th century is heavily associated with pietism and you know, by, by, by that with, uh, with uh, uh, Protestant theology, the Protestant Enlightenment theology, folks like uh, Lawrence Mosheim, who, who becomes a, a great hit in the Russian Orthodox Church, but also is you know, the uh, chancellor of Göttingen University where Russian Orthodox students go and study, and, uh, um, and also you know, Wolfian theology or Wolfian philosophy becomes a hit in Russian Orthodox seminaries, Again, this is coming from Germany. So, you know, there is uh, a a kind of an ethnic element that's associated with Northern Germany and Protestant Germany uh, that influences how Enlightenment gets uh, transferred, uh, Enlightenment ideas get transferred into the Orthodox Church. See, I'm not talking about how enlightenment ideas get transferred into the minds of Radishchev and Novikov. Of course, they're reading a lot of <laughs> French enlightenment, uh, which uh, a lot of it is, you could classify as secular. Um, but in the Orthodox Church, we do have, you know, the enlightenment ideas are, uh, are transferred from Germany. And one key element that I think is uh, present in German enlightenment, uh, religious enlightenment, as well as in the Russian religious enlightenment, is this idea that revelation uh, comes not only Uh, or, um, you know, our knowledge of theology, our knowledge of doctrine comes not only from uh, the uh, revealed sources, such as the scripture, but also comes from reason. Reason is a source of revelation. And this is something that uh, the Russian Orthodox Church sort of get directly from, uh, from the Germans and from Protestant Enlightenment in Germany.
1: Thank you, yes, and thank you for making this distinction between kind of the rational enlightenment coming more from France perhaps and a a spiritual enlightenment. On this kind of, here's a beginner question for um, the spiritual enlightenment. What is Pietism?
2: So Pietism is a uh, 17th, 18th century German theological uh, movement. Uh, that, um, becomes a, uh, that becomes the uh, harbinger of enlightenment and Germans classified as Frühaufklärung or early enlightenment. Pietism is seen as a kind of a liberation force that liberated German-Lutheran uh, theology from uh, sort of the shackles of old Lutheran orthodoxy. Uh, and some view Pietism as uh, this movement that focuses on reason, on rationality, it focuses also on uh, uh, various elements of, uh, um, uh, of charity, for example, their orphanages are, are world famous and so on, on, on uh, uh, translation of uh, literature in various languages of the world. This is where Moravian movement comes in, influenced by pietism, the idea that we should translate all this literature into different languages with interest in patristics. An interest mm-hmm. in uh, in uh, uh, Oriental languages, Armenian language, Eastern Slavic language, uh, Church Slavonic languages, uh, Aramaic and so on. This, so Pietism is this movement that that tries to take German Lutheranism out of the sort of old confines of orthodoxy and orthodox debates. So they don't, the pietists don't care, for example, about the distinction between Calvinist understanding of, uh, of uh, the Eucharist and the Lutheran understanding or, you know, understanding of predestination. They move beyond that and they try to look at how do we understand the world uh, theologically if God has given us a reason and not just revelation to do that. Um, and how do we uh, develop new epistemologies to understand the world around us and so on. So this is something that, that pietism does. And uh, pietism in its early, early enlightenment phase is very much sort of into that, but it also is into piety. So that is why it's called pietism, because it focuses on individual um, uh, spiritual progress, and uh, uh, pietism in Scandinavia in particular, and pietism also in Germany in many ways, becomes a almost like a neo-ascetic movement. That's why when I was reading T- Tihon of Zdonsk, I was surprised to see that Russian Orthodox monks found pietistic devotional literature to be very suitable for the practice of monastic orthodoxy. Because uh, a lot of pietists in Germany were very strict about sort of how ascetic a regular Lutheran should be. And so when the Eastern Orthodox are reading ascetic uh, sides of pietism, they find it very appealing. Um, there's also a, a late pietism also known as neo-pietism in very late 18th century, early 19th century, uh, sometimes called Württemberg pietism. It, it's a difference sort of strain of pietism, it goes more into revelation and predicting the end of the world and so on, and, when, and calculating when the end of the world happens. This late strain of pietism, I don't really deal with it very much except when I go into awakening, but, um, uh, but that some historians would say is not very sort of relatable to the rational pietism of uh, the early Enlightenment. So that's kind of a way to explain pietism, but it's a major movement in Germany and Europe, Central Europe in the 18th century.
1: Thank you very much. Um, it, is, it is a real pleasure to get to tap into your knowledge on these theological movements. Let me, um, okay, I, I know we don't have too much more time, but I want to c- come back to where the book ends. When the book ends, we have this, um, so a sort of, Reformation, Enlightenment, and Awakening has taken place among the elite in the Orthodox Church in Russia, Um, correct? And um, so I wanna, I'm sort of wondering how does the turn of the 18th to 19th century church in Russia compare to um, churches um, to the West? And you could take your pick for what to answer. And I also wanna ask, how, to what extent has this Reformation enlightenment sunken down into the masses or does it stay among the elite in the church or how do you see it?
2: Mm-hmm. So um, the influence, the, the thorough influence of enlightenment and uh, before that Protestant Reformation, of course, you know, it stays in, uh, in the elites. The elites, uh, propagate these ideas to the masses in various ways and that's how these ideas sort of become ingrained in the masses one is uh through education uh, that is seminary education which becomes very protestant influenced and then enlightenment influenced uh that is for example priests uh learning french and reading french literature under uh including voltaire under um uh, Evgeny Bolchovitinov's, for example, supervision when he was teaching in the seminaries. And we're talking about uh, seminaries like uh, Voronezh, for example. We're talking about seminaries like Tabov and so on, and uh, Novgorod, and not just Moscow and St. Petersburg and Kiev. So we have, uh, we have education that, that influences uh, sort of lower echelons of the Orthodox Church. We also have the ideas that influence the relationship with peasantry because of the Um, uh, Emancipation of 1760s, we're not talking about the 1860s emancipation we're talking about the emancipation with uh, church reforms land reforms, and so on and that is influenced uh, that that's where you see some of the influence but there's also some curious. Impacts of uh, of Reformation influence with uh, uh, with the translation of uh, of uh, New Testaments into uh, vernacular languages like the Crimean Tatar language uh, in uh, 1820s and uh, or in in Udmurt or Chuvash language and so on and and spread of that literature um, in um, in various sort of Russian Russian nationalities um, and uh, finally you know one of the interesting side influences that I found was uh, the emergence of uh, sectarian or Dukhobor movements, for example, uh, in Tambov and Molokan movements in, in the 18th century. Uh, one of the documents or one of the files that I was looking at, uh, the reports to the Holy Synod, were talking about the uh, people in Tambov, gubernia, the peasants, reading the catechism. Of uh, Prokopovich, you know, um, which is also known as Pierwoechenia, uh, Otrokom, or Bukvari. and that catechism is based off Martin Luther's catechism. Um, and so, well, what happens after the peasants in Russia start reading the catechism of feofan Prokopovich, which, of course, is official catechism of the Russian Orthodox Church in the 18th century? Well, some of them start getting the ideas that they shouldn't have icons in their homes. And they stop. They start taking down icons from their homes, and then you know one thing leads to another. And then we have the Dukobors and we have Momolokanya, and we have other sectarian movements that emerge. And how do they start? Well, they just start reading Prokopovich, which was the official doctrine of the Russian Orthodox Church in the 18th century. Uh, they just got these ideas from the uh, official catechism that uh, icons were somehow uh, idolatrous. Of course, that, that's not where Prokopovich was going in his catechism, but you could read it that way if you uh, if you read it in a certain way. So this is, uh, you know, there's all kinds of sort of, and of course you have the emergence of opposition after, in 19th century, you have the counter reforms, you have this whole idea of kind of liberal um, uh, segment in the Orthodox Church that uh, that turns against Nicholas I and then reemerges against during the great reforms and so on. And so there's a larger story that goes up until 1917. And, you know, we have also the story of the red priests, right? you probably heard about these uh, these priests in uh, during the Russian Revolution um, that become very radically uh, uh, liberal for, for the Orthodox Church. But I'm arguing that a lot of these Sort of uh, a lot of this is happening already in the 18th century. And then once the movement is is essentially canned by Nicholas I, by um, the counter-reform, uh, it still stays in uh, in one form or another, maybe in the underground form of some sort in the seminaries and continues to influence uh, the seminarians and the Orthodox uh, church uh, clergy or or uh, especially educated clergy in the rest of the 19th century. So I'm saying there is an after story that still continues but we need to go back to the origins and the origins are the these uh, influences, Western influences in the uh, 18th century.
1: Thank you. It is, it is such fascinating work and um, it, that just gives us so much to think about. Your final comments there, talk about counter-reformation, talk about the um, you know, famous, conservatism of the Orthodox church in the late 19th century in a period of reaction, et cetera. And, and just thinking about, um, the ebbs and flows of, of where the ebbs and flows of the thinking of church elites. Um, anyone thinking about that should definitely read a spiritual revolution, the impact of reformation and enlightenment in Orthodox Russia. The book is by university of Wisconsin press and, um, so, Andre, before I let you go, I would like to ask, just thank you so much for this fascinating discussion. And at New Books Network, we always like to ask people, um, what are you working on now?
2: Well, I have a biography of Ifan Prokopovic that I'm uh, working on right now. And there is uh, also a monograph that I'm working on that is related to my dissertation, actually, uh, that studies the uh, military sermons, the wartime homilies in Imperial Russia. Uh, Essentially, I'm looking at how the Orthodox Church interpreted wars uh, in Russia from the uh, uh, Seven Years' War until World War I. I'm looking at these various wars and how the Russian Orthodox Church preached about these wars to the masses. So those are two projects I'm working on right now.
1: Wow, and isn't that letter a very timely one? Um, Well, Andre, thank you so much. It's really, really been a pleasure. I encourage everyone to um, read read the book yourself. It's really a, a fascinating and worthwhile read. And with that, um, I will say thank you very much and have a terrific day.